Teeth. You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I have dwelled in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, I did speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus... You shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from falling the sheep, that you should be the prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all of your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We have been this semester working our way through the life of David in RUF, and we're just trying to explore what is ordinary spirituality? What does it look like to just, what does the normal, ordinary life of following Jesus look like? And tonight, uh, it doesn't get any more spiritual than to talk about the nature of who God is. Uh, what is God actually like? What is, uh, what's his character? What does he do? And to kind of get, to get into this, I want you to come with me and think about Elf for a second. Do you remember Elf? Three of y'all have seen it. And uh, you remember the scene where they're at the department store, and the department store is all decked out in Christmas stuff, and there's Christmas banners and toys and trees and fake snow, and there's like the empty chair on the stage, and all the little kids are out there waiting for Santa to show up, and eventually kind of Santa comes around from the back, and all the kids start going crazy, Santa, Santa! And Buddy the Elf is there with them, and he's jumping up and down, Santa, Santa, it's me, it's Buddy! And so Santa's like, hey, Buddy! And he kind of sits down, and uh, the first little kid comes up and sits in his lap and starts to 
tell Santa what he wants for Christmas, and you remember the scene well, uh, Buddy, the elf, gets a little closer to Santa and realizes, whoa, this doesn't look like Santa. This doesn't smell like Santa. And so he starts to investigate and ask questions. He's like, if you're the real Santa, what was the song that I sang for you last year on your birthday? And Santa goes, well, happy birthday, of course. And, Santa, and Buddy, I was like, dang it. And so, um, and he gets a little closer, and, and, and I, I found the exact quote. Some of you probably know it from heart, for heart. He says this, you disgust me. How can you live with yourself? You sit on a throne of lies. You stink. You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. And I love this, I love this scene because Buddy the Elf knows this is not the real Santa. But all of the kids were initially very excited to see Santa. Buddy was even very excited to see Santa. Playing along, jumping down and, uh, and laughing. And um, the kids can't tell this, but Buddy can tell this that this is a counterfeit. This is a fake. He sits on a throne of lies. This is not the real Santa. And the reason I want to begin like this is because I thought it'd be interesting to ask the question, what if that's true of us spiritually? What if we're just like the kids that are excited and kind of playing along and thrilled with this God that we're here to kind of talk about tonight? But if we analyzed who this God is, if we got a little closer, we would begin to see that this God's a fake. This God's a counterfeit. What if your God smells like beef and cheese? What if your God sits on the throne of lies? And so I, what I want to do tonight, I think this passage is really interesting because the true God reveals to us what he's like. He tells us, okay, you want to know the true God, not a counterfeit version of me, but the real me, me? Let me tell you about me. And so in this passage, what he does is he gives us three different aspects of who he really is, who the true God really is. So here are the three. The true God comes close the true God gives grace, and the true God is faithful. And so those are just the three ideas I want to look at with you tonight. Who is the real God? Well, the true God comes close, he gives grace, and he's faithful. So first, uh, the true God comes close. And, and as we kind of get into the story, right at the beginning you'll see that King David is kind of on the top of his game. He's at the height of his career. He's the king now. He's enthroned. He's unified Israel as a nation. He's made Jerusalem his capital city. He's brought the Ark of the Covenant in there. He's won all of these military battles. Like everything is going well. Life is good. David is the man. And he's sitting, chilling with his pastor named Nathan. And he says in verses 1 and 2, you know, something's bothering me. Because here I live in this extravagant, awesome palace made of cedar. And it's expensive and it's elegant. And God, like, lives in a tent. That's not right. I want to build God a temple, a house. Something giant and awesome for our God. I want to do something big for God. And Nathan, in verse 3, says, dude, that sounds like an amazing idea. Game on with that. Let's do it. So they kind of high-five each other and go home for the end of the night. And that night it tells us that God comes to Nathan and says, you got to shut this construction project down immediately. This has to stop now. And in fact, I want you to go to David and I want you to send a message to him. And here's what I want you to tell him. Go to David and say, oh, this is my sarcastic uh, paraphrase of God's message to David via Nathan. Oh, 
you feel sorry for little old me that I live in a tent and you live in a big palace. That is so kind of you to care about where I live. By the way, David, I don't ever remember complaining about living in a tent. And then he goes on in verse 6 and 7 and he says, Ever since I have rescued my people from Egypt, I have been with them wherever they go. When they wandered through the wilderness, I wandered with them through the wilderness. Where they moved, I moved. I have always been with my people. And what he's saying is this. David, you fundamentally misunderstand what kind of God I am. You think I'm just like every other king or every other ruler of these other nations that has to live in some giant McMansion, like far off and away, like in a gated community away from the common people. But he says, I'm not that kind of God. I am a God that draws close. I am with my people. I am Emmanuel, God with us. Where they go, I go. When they suffer, I suffer. Where they wander, I wander. Where my people are, that's where I am. See, David would have said on a test, I know what God is like, but he would have failed. He didn't actually know who God, the real true God actually comes close. Now, why does that matter? Here's why this matters. Think about this. Some of y'all know I have two kids. We have two kids. My wife and I, we have two kids. They hurt themselves all the time. I don't know if it's just children in general or just our two children, but we've been to the ER twice in 2017, and there's been like barely two months of 2017, we've been to the ER twice with broken bones, lots of stitches, and blood everywhere. Our children fall. I mean, I was holding one of our children before I came here. They cry eight times a day, fall, hurt themselves. And here's what's interesting. Whenever our kids fall and they skin a knee and the hot tears come and they're hurting and they're crying, they run towards us and we hold them. We just kind of like whatever this is, pat them. We, um, we kiss their boo-boos. And if you think about it, like holding a hurting child and kissing their, like us kissing their boo-boos doesn't heal them. Like that doesn't do anything. And yet they calm down. And maybe it actually does do something. Because I really do think there's something mystically weird and mysterious about the reality of just being with them that heals them. And if you apply that idea spiritually and you say, okay, when I have, when I feel humiliated or angry or lonely or frustrated or confused or depressed and I sense that God is near, that God is with me, that's healing. And so my question for you is, uh, do you ever sense the nearness of God? You may say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe in the existence of God. But that's, that's not what I'm talking about. That's, that's data. I'm not talking about knowing and, or believing in data. I'm talking about personally experiencing the presence and the nearness of God. To go through life and know he's with me. He's near to me. He draws close to me. Uh, our, our daughter, six-year-old Zoe Kate, I, I was telling this story tonight at the dinner table. When she was two years old, uh, I remember sitting her in her little chair, and she had the little tray of food in front of her, and I, and I had prepared her some uh, frozen blueberry waffles. And we had, we had this syrup that a friend had given us, and I wanted her to try this new syrup, so I poured a little bit on the tray. I just wanted her to taste it. She wanted nothing to do with it. It's like, so okay, just take the little waffle bit, dip it in the thing, and like you'll love it. Trust me. Wants nothing to do with it. So, me being a good dad, I take the 
waffle and dip it in there and forcibly make her taste it. Because I know if she will taste it, she will like it. So I put it up to her mouth and she does the like the, the, like, the, the golden retriever thing. Like I will not put that in my mouth. So I just gently like pressed it against her face. I smashed her face with it and immediately tears and screaming and crying as she got all this syrup all over her lips. And I just waited. I waited. Because I knew. I knew as soon as that tongue comes out and she tastes it, she's going to be with me. And so she's screaming and crying and eventually something gets on her tongue and she like instantly stops. And immediately wants syrup. And I thought, that's the way it is. Like, dad, this, she should know daddy is always right. Always trust me. She's also going to need counseling for this incident. But, but I thought about this incident, and here's this child with syrup all over her. It's on her lips, and she hasn't, she hasn't experienced it yet. She hasn't tasted it. And I thought, that's kind of an interesting picture of what a lot of religious people are like. People that go to stuff like RUF. Us religious people. Where we kind of got... God all around us. Maybe, maybe God's even on our lips. We're talking about him all the time. Talking about him in Bible study. Talking about him in large group. And yet, haven't experienced him yet. Haven't tasted him yet. He's just outside of us. And we haven't, we haven't brought him in yet. But what I want you to see is that the true God comes close. The true God is not content to just be outside of you. Remote from you. Distant from you. The true God wants to become, wants in. The true God wants experience with you. So that's the first thing I want you to see about the God of the Bible. But here's the other thing that that God reveals about himself in this text, is that the true God gives grace. He doesn't just come close, he gives grace. Uh, Look look at this. Um, In verse 8, well, to back up, here's David. He wants to do something big for God, right? I want to build this big, awesome temple for God. I want to do something big for God. And that sounds really noble, that sounds mature, that sounds spiritual. And yet God confronts him and says, if you do this, this will be extremely dangerous for your spiritual health. The reason why is because, David, you have forgotten what this relationship is built on. You've forgotten what it's like to relate to me as God I am the top-down, one-way provider of grace and goodness in this relationship. You don't do big stuff for me. I do big stuff for you. And so from verse 8 all the way through verse 11, God just rehearses everything that he's ever done for David to remind David everything you have is a gift. Everything you have is purely by grace. Look at verse 8. God says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David. Notice, by the way, he doesn't call him King David. He says, he's my servant. Remind David that he's my servant. He thinks he's Mr. Big Shot now. He lives in this awesome palace. You need to let him know. Tell my servant David this. And then he goes on in verse 8. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. God says, I came to you. You didn't come to me. I came seeking you. You didn't seek me. You were out in a pasture dealing with sheep, which, by the way, in this cultural moment, that was the lowest of the low kind of socioeconomic job. So in other words, uh, I mean, for us, this would be, I guess, somewhat similar like being a garbage collector or, or a janitor. 
And God comes to him and says, hey, you, you were stuck in this dead-end job, going nowhere. You weren't seeking me, and I wrecking balled my way into your life and pulled you up out of obscurity, out of a dead-end job to be the king over all of Israel. Everything that you have, all of your story is just grace and grace and grace and grace. And it keeps going. Look at verse 9. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. He's saying, look, all your military success is because of me. It wasn't because you were strong. It wasn't because you were strategic. It wasn't because you were gifted. I went with you, and I cut off all of your enemies. All your accomplishments are a gift from me. It's all grace. And then look at the end of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He's saying to David, look, you don't build me a house. I build you a house. You don't do something big and awesome for me. I do something big and awesome for you. And so what's God doing here? He's reminding him that everything you have is a gift. Every breath you're taking, every step you've ever taken in your life, your entire story is just grace. It's all a gift. It's been all from me. I'm the provider. You're the recipient. I'm the savior. You're, you're, you're the, the one that gets saved. I'm the one that's active. You're the one that's passive. That's how this relationship works. You don't do for me. I do for you. Now, uh, I remember when I was younger, uh, I'm sure you've had this experience as well. I remember when go, like, going out to dinner with my family, if we'd ever go out to dinner with another like family friend, like another family that we're friends with, and um, we didn't have a nice, enjoyable, family-friendly meal, and then the check would come, and then things would get really weird between the two dads. Because, like, my dad would try to grab the check to, like, take care of the meal for everybody. And then the other dad would be grabbing his wallet. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then they get this weird, like, southern polite tug of war over who's going to take the check. And it's, no, I insist. No, I insist. I insist. And it's this awkward, like, back and forth. And eventually somebody loses. And... What eventually happens is, uh, you know, here's one family that says, you know, everything that you just ate is a gift. Everything you just ate, it's, it's free. It's, a free. it's our treat. It's our delight to treat you. And the losing dad, without a, like every single time, would have this response. Well, you know, thank you. That's so generous. We got next time. What's that? What is that? What's that instinct? I mean, I know it's like southern. It's polite. We're trying to be nice. But there's something in there that's interesting. There's something in there that says, I don't like being the recipient of pure grace. I've got to even this out. I've got to pay you back. I'm deeply uncomfortable with just receiving because that puts me in a position where I can't do anything. So I've got to do something. I'll, I'll get you next time. I've got to do. And that's the instinct. Now here's the question for you. Are you ever okay with just receiving from God. To just simply receive and to not do something. To not feel like, i got to pay him back. Which would be wrong and offensive if you tried. Uh, to, to say, like, I, I can't, I'm in a position where I can't do anything other than just receive. I can't say I got it next time. I can't make it even. I can't settle the score. Have you allowed yourself to be in a position where you just simply receive? Which, by the way, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. You know this, right? Every other religion in the world, bottom line, basically says, do stuff for God. Do, some, do more stuff for God. Buddha's last words, you know what Buddha's last words were? 
never cease striving. That's the bottom line of every other religion. Don't stop striving. Keep doing more. Do more for God. Do more for God. You're not doing enough for God, so keep striving. Do more. You know what Jesus' last words were? It is finished. Everything that needs to be done, done. You do nothing now but receive. That is the fundamental difference between every other religion and the gospel. Do you receive or do you feel like you've got to pay back? Because look at David. David has done nothing. David was nobody from nowhere, and God wrecked into his life, pulled him out of obscurity, conquered all of his enemies, made him king. Everything about David's life, gift, gift, gift. Did you know 23 times in this chapter, God is the, is the subject of the sentence. I do this. I did that. I will do this. I will. I will. I will. I'm the doer. I'm the provider. I'm the savior. I'm the rescuer. You are the recipient. That's how this relationship works. Now, uh, what's really um, hard about this idea for us as Americans is that we are obsessed with doing. We're driven by performance. Uh, we, we feel like we've got to do more. We've we got to sign up for something. We've got we to be involved in something. I've got to lead something. I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do. As, as religious Americans, this is really hard for us. And we get our wires crossed into thinking that this is what Christianity is. It's just, here's a bunch of stuff to do. I mean, if, some of you probably know this, um, that I, I hurt my leg last year, and so over the summer I had to go, to, go through physical therapy and so for like two months, multiple times a week, I was getting to know my, ther- my physical therapist guy. And um, I was just getting to know him, asking, asking him questions. Where do you live in Knoxville? What do you do? And I, I kind of figured out, oh, he goes to a big church in Knoxville. And I won't say the name of what it, what it was. And I was just asking, what are you learning? Or what's, this, uh, what's your church teaching on right now? And I can't remember exactly what the theme of the series was, but the basic idea was that it was kind of this like athletic metaphor. It was like um, life is a sport, and the big kind of driving message week in and week out was get your head in the game. I was like, that's really interesting. And I thought, um, that's a Christian church in town that's sending people out the door with the takeaway message of, Get your head in the game. This is like, life is, life is intense. There's a lot at stake. You better get with it. You better do more. You better get, if you're going to be a light in this city, you've got to get pumped up for God. You better start getting serious for God. You've got to start doing more. You better start getting real about this. That's the takeaway. You know what that is? Never cease striving. That's just do more. Do more stuff. And here is God, the real God, saying, You receive. That's your job. You just open up your hands and receive. We have gotten confused into thinking that Christianity is about the sacrifices we make for Jesus. But Christianity is about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. The real God says, you don't do stuff for me, I do stuff for you. You don't do big things for me, I do big things for you. You are the recipient, you are the passive one, I am the active one, I'm the provider, I'm the savior. In other words, the true God gives grace. Here's the last thing I want you to see. True God comes close, he gives grace, and he is faithful. Uh, 
David earlier said to God, I will build a house for you. And the word that he, what he was talking about was build a temple for God. I want to build a temple for God. And then God in verse 11 comes to David and says, no, no, no. I'm going to build a house for you. And what God means, he's kind of doing a little wordplay here. But he's saying, I'm going to build a dynasty for you. Like, I'm going to establish the house of David. Children, your children are always going to be royalty. Your children after you are always going to occupy the Davidic throne. Somebody from your lineage through the years is always going to be reigning and ruling. That's the promise that he makes. So, so, so look at verse 12. God kind of makes this point that nothing is going to stop this promise from happening. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. God says, look, when you die, someone else after you is going to sit on your throne and rule. Not even death is going to stop this from happening. And it keeps going. Look at verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And God's saying, look, your sons are going to blow it, they're going to sin, they're going to screw it up, but guess what? Not even their sin is going to stop this thing from happening. Keep going. Verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Like forever, ever. Forever, ever? Yes, forever, ever. Here's what he's saying. Outcast reference for the three of y'all that got that. God is saying, look, I'm making a promise to you, David, that is so sure that one of your sons is going to rule on your throne forever, ever, ever, and not even death can stop it, not even sin can stop it. It is going to happen. So, you think that's pretty awesome. And so you start reading the rest of the Old Testament and David starts having these kids and the line develops and there's like another kid on the David throne and then another kid on the David throne and you go through this list and most of them are all horrible. And the kingdom basically falls apart. Somebody eventually builds the temple, but guess what? An invading army comes in and destroys it. The kingdom gets ripped in half. It gets nearly annihilated. And when you get to the end of the Old Testament, not only do you not have a kingdom in Israel, you don't even have a, there's no David king anywhere near the place. So what happened to this awesome, big, giant promise God said that one of your sons is going to reign on the throne forever and ever and ever? And not even sin and death can can, can stop it. Well, you read the first verse of the New Testament, and the first verse of the New Testament answers that question. Look at Matthew uh, 1, 1, and it basically says this. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You know those boring genealogies in the Bible that if you've ever looked through the Bible before, you see these like lists of genealogies like next chapter. Uh, why are those there? One purpose is that they're there is so they connect 2 Samuel 7 to the person of Jesus. I mean, if you think, think about the Lion King for a second. Remember the, um, when Mufasa was king, like everything, like the landscape was lush and green and vibrant. Everything was alive and colorful. And then like the bad scar takes the throne. And what happens to the landscape eventually? It becomes all like dry and barren and rotten and dead and everybody's afraid. That's kind of how the Old Testament ends. It's just like wasteland. Where are the promises? Where's the hope? And then Matthew 1.1 says, oh yeah, Jesus, the son of David has shown up. And 
And when David shows, when Jesus shows up, everybody starts calling him, Jesus, son of David, walking around. Hey, son of David, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus immediately start talking about when he begins his public ministry? A kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm establishing this kingdom. The fulfillment of this promise is in me. And what kind of kingdom is Jesus establishing? One that is marked by love and justice and grace and mercy. So you remember back to the Lion King, remember when Simba takes the throne, the rightful king, the heir, the true heir, the true king? What happens to that nasty, barren, gross landscape? Everything starts getting healed and restored. And that is what Jesus is doing, ruling on the throne of his father David right now. Like the world that you woke up in is a world that Jesus is slowly renovating, slowly restoring, where he's binding the brokenhearted. He's being compassionate and providing community for the lonely. He's providing joy for the downcast and the, and the uh, depressed. He, he's, he's bringing freedom to those that are in bondage. This is what Jesus is doing, establishing justice for the oppressed, This is the kingdom that Jesus is establishing. And it's so good and it's so powerful, death couldn't even stop it. He busts out of the grave. Sin couldn't stop it. He climbed up on a cross and dealt with it and crushed sin at its core. The kingship of Jesus is one marked by love. And and the Bible is saying it's unstoppable. He is faithful to his promises and therefore he is trustworthy. And so I want to I end with this. I want to end by telling you about my son, who is four years old. And we have been potty training this kid for way longer than we should be. I think we started last May. And this brother is still getting potty trained. We should just pray all right now. But... Um, to potty train a kid, you know, you provide them with incentives, little rewards. They do something on the potty. Here's a, you know, treat or a candy or, you know, whatever. And we've been really working with him. And so we knew that he had his eyes on this big Lego toy, Star Wars X-Wing. If you don't know what that is, it's a spaceship. And so he has his eyes on the Star Wars Lego X-Wing. And so we said, okay, Reed, we're going to get this for you to really kind of help you get over the hump here. And so we bought, we brought this like box home and set it before him. And his eyes went giant. And he was like, oh, this is awesome, X-Wing. And so he got on and said, like, can we open it? I said, no, 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 we can't open it yet. If you go seven days without any accidents... And you go in the potty every single time, you can open it. Okay, okay, awesome. Next day, awesome, can we open it? Read, no, 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 we got to go seven days without any accidents, then you can open it. Later that afternoon, can we open it? Read, you got to go seven days. So, I mean, he hasn't opened it, we haven't gone seven days yet, he still hasn't opened it yet, but... He began to look at that box every day. He'd sit on the ground and he would just look at the pictures and make noise, make noises with his with his face. He he. Um, when we would run errands, he would want to have the box next to him in the car, and so we just put it next to him in the car. He sleeps with the box. Last night, my child sleeping in bed, box of X-wing next to him. I, it was interesting, the past couple of like weeks as he's been playing with this box, is I've, I've really started to notice he's stopped asking if he can open it. He's just gotten used to relating to the box as if it's the toy. He literally 
will fly it around the house. And, and I thought about this poor kid with this X-Wing. And I, and I began to think, you know, uh, maybe that's in some ways a picture of some of us. Where, where we've gotten just so used to relating to God as like the box. He's just an idea. He's just an interesting uh, concept. Uh, maybe we pray to him every now and then. Uh, we think about him every now and then. But we're just relating to the box and we haven't actually broken through to enjoy him. To actually enjoy him. We're just enjoying the box, the idea. And so the invitation I want to leave you with tonight is simply this. It's not to do anything. It's to simply encounter and experience him for who he truly is. To come to know, maybe for the first time, that the true God comes close. He's not remote. That the true God gives grace. He does big stuff for you. He doesn't ask you to do big stuff for him. And the true God is faithful, and so you can absolutely trust him with everything. That is who the true God is. Is that the God in your head? Is that the God that you worship? Or are you worshiping a counterfeit God? A fake one? One that sits on a throne of lies? The invitation is to come to the true one, to the real one. Father, I do ask um, that you would be kind to enable us to respond to who you truly are. Would we come to know a God that is more intimate and near than we thought? Uh, a God that's not content with just um, us checking off a box on some theological data, but, but experiencing us, coming to enjoy us personally, intimately. A God that gives grace and grace abundant, and a God that is absolutely truthful and faithful and trustworthy. Father, uh, I pray that you would help correct the false images that we have of you, uh, ways that we are um, spiritually exhausted because we're serving a God that isn't real. Recalibrate our hearts. Give us a real vision for the beauty and the goodness of who you truly are. And I pray that you would woo and draw our hearts to you. And we would ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.